The power of cooling of ice, the phase change that it goes through from being a solid to a liquid and then up to say 37 degrees, you get so much more bang for your buck from ice than you do from water. My strategy was always if I can cool anyone on the side of the road with no facilities, um, then you know I've got the ultimate strategy. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and have a combined over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professionals and Olympic athletes. We're also both researchers in sports nutrition at Monash University and we really love translating the often complex science of sports nutrition into simple and practical strategies. Each week, we'll take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, the sort of stuff that people are often debating out on their training sessions, in the car to and from the, the trails, or in the coffee shop after a training session. And we'll break it down, invite a guest expert in our A episode and an athlete or a coach in the B episode to provide their perspectives. Anyway. How are you going today, Steph? I'm going good. I'm going good. Loving the uh, the weekend weather was pretty pretty nice, and um, it was yeah. There were obviously the Melbourne Marathon was was on um, on the weekend, um, and uh, yeah, that was good to see. Like a lot of people do really well and and you know break their PBs. And it seems like a bit of a almost an emotional outpouring, I guess, sort of the first big running event since the lockdown finished here in Melbourne. Brilliant weather. I think everyone was just so happy to be there and have an event run. Yeah, and finish on the MCG, which is always super yeah. nice as well. Um, mm. And we, like, a lot of people did well that we know um, and we obviously want to highlight Izzy um, Bat-Doyle, who was on our, um, you're good with the podcast numbers, but she was on our podcast not all that long ago. Yeah, no, I've, uh, I'm going to say 23B maybe. Yeah, around there. 23 or, yeah, I think it was 23B. Yep. Um, answering, uh, the question, does Lena, well, helping, you know, be the athlete part in terms of does Lena or Elida equal faster? Uh, so yeah, we, we had a lot of really good feedback from that. Um, and I'm just excited out because hopefully fingers crossed, I don't want to curse anything, but this Wednesday will be my last, uh, study participant for my PhD which is super exciting. I am. That is super exciting. Just cannot wait. I remember when that happened to me, and I was just like, "Oh, this is so amazing!" And then, like three weeks later, when you're bogged down in statistics <laughs> and writing papers, you're like, "Yeah, I could go back in the lab about now." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am. I'm weary of that. I am weary of that. Um, but no, it's a, it's a massive achievement. So yeah. congrats! And I know it's been really hard the last couple of years to recruit people and get studies run with all the the lockdowns and restrictions changing week by week. So yeah, well done. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, soon to head down to um, Adelaide, uh, do a bit of a road trip with uh, my little man Coops and take the bike down and get in some running and and bike riding down there with some friends. So that'll be super mm. cool. Yeah, awesome. And what about you? You're um, 
what's happening? Getting ready for Christmas with the kids? Have you got all the Christmas presents sorted? Yeah, I, th- I think we're pretty well sorted now. Elf on a Shelf made its first appearance the other night, <laughs> much to their, their delight. What's Elf on a Shelf? What's that? Oh, you'll have to go and watch the movie, Steph. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I won't explain it now. It'll take too, too long. long. But go and watch the movie. Right. I'm sure all the parents out there are like, oh, the bloody elf's back again. <laughs> um, but, yes, we, my wife and I were making bets on at what, what time in the morning the kids would realise that the elf on the shelf had appeared. I guessed 8, 12 a.m. Uh, I could hear the screaming and the yelling at 8, 09. Oh, so I wasn't oh my far gosh. Off. <laughs> craziness, craziness. But, yeah, no, other than that, uh, just trying to wind up things yeah. um, at the uni, really, um, and trying to get, get all the, the T's crossed and the I's dotted and everything yeah. to uh, wrap up for the end of the year, which is good. And then, mm, um, exciting. Yeah, see what happens after um, that. Yeah. So today's episode, Steph, is our second last episode for the year. So do you want to tell us what episode it is and who we're going to talk to? Yeah. So episode episode 28A, how can my nutrition help to keep me cool? And we've got uh, Dr. Megan or Meg uh, Ross. So um, yeah, super lucky to have Meg on and um, this, you know, we, we were sort of like, oh, have we covered this already, you know, when we chatted to Ollie? Um, but, but yeah, we, we definitely hadn't um, and we thought this would be really relevant for our listeners and particularly obviously considering that now we're in summer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just a reminder that there is, this is the second last episode for the year, there'll be one more uh, and it's actually going to come out a little bit earlier next week. So instead of coming out on the Thursday like it normally does, we're going to bring it out on the Monday because Thursday is only a couple of days before Christmas. So people might be a bit frantically organising things, shopping, whatever it is, um, or getting ready to go away on holidays. So we thought we'd bring that one out a little bit earlier that week to give people time to listen to it a bit earlier in that week. Um, or if you don't, then you can listen to it over the, the Christmas New Year break as well. Uh, and then after that, we're going to take a, a few weeks off um, in terms of podcast and then come back probably early to, to mid-January, I think, is the plan at this stage. We haven't set an exact date for that, but obviously we'll, we'll let you know as soon as we do. Mm. Yep. And social media shout-outs and, and questions. Yeah, I guess the first thing is a massive thank you to everyone who replied to the polls that we put up on Instagram and Twitter last week, um, seeking some feedback about the podcast. Obviously, you know, we had our first birthday episode only a couple of weeks ago, and it was really a, a bit of a time for us to do a bit of reflection and review of where we're at with the podcast, what everyone's enjoying, if there's anything we should change or, or do differently with the podcast. So yeah, a big thanks to, to everyone who replied. It was a really great response. Um, particularly on Instagram. And I guess the, the things that came out of that, I guess the, the big messages that we got from everyone is that they feel that the length of the podcast is good. It was something that we weren't too sure if people were thinking, oh, it's a bit long. Um, but no, everyone's pretty happy with the length for the most part. Um, interestingly, we asked people what their favourite parts of the podcast was, uh, and it was really very varied, um, which I think kind of speaks to the the variety that we have in the podcast. You know, some people said, oh, I really love the, the scientific parts and the actual you know nerding out on the the physiology and, and that kind of thing other people said that they really loved the athlete stories and their own practical experiences with the different topics uh, some people commented that they love that it has both of those elements and that they are paired together 
which was something I think we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Steph, was not something that we really set out to do at the, the very start of the podcast, kind of fell into that by accident. But I think, um, you know, from the feedback we get from people, it's it's well and truly been worth it. And I think, you know, both you and I really enjoy that aspect as well, having that scientific perspective, speaking to a researcher, but then getting to interview an athlete around the same topic um, and getting their experience. Uh, someone else actually commented that their favourite part of the podcast was actually the summaries at the end. And they probably would have been referring to your summaries, Alan, apart oh. from my waffle. So all, all summaries are good summaries, Steph. <laughs> all summaries are good summaries. Um, but yeah, so that that's good as well. So obviously we we will keep doing those for sure. Uh, and then the final thing that we asked people about was you know what future things that we might develop uh, in addition to the podcast. Um, and so a couple of things that people were particularly in favour of were infographic summaries of each of the topics that we cover. Um, so something that's sort of short, easy to digest, um, or possibly a, a short little blog post or possibly an infographic within a short little blog post, maybe. Um, so that's something we'll certainly have a think about over the break and, and work out what we're going to do for, for 2022. But um, yeah, exciting things to come there. Mm. All right. Um, other than that, Steph, we had a bit of interaction on Instagram this week. We did. We did our. Um, so we had Alison who mentioned that she's enjoying the podcast um, and she's listened to all the uh, back episodes now. Um, so, yeah, that's nice. I think, as you mentioned, um, not that long ago in the last um, podcast that, yeah, I think we, we're getting people some new listeners and then they're now seeing, oh, we've actually also covered this. So they're going back to, to listen to those episodes, which is, is great. Yeah. Uh, we had Steph Austin and she um, commented that she's loving the blend of science and, and um, practical um, feedback from the athlete experiences. Uh, Ryan Shand, um, who's been awesome with, with feedback, and um, he mentioned that they coach about 100 athletes in, in Perth and um, often reference our, um, he mentioned, awesome content in, in group discussions. So thank you to Ryan um, and then uh, we also had some Twitter feedback out. Yeah, just a shout out to Angela Davies who gave us some really good feedback um, when we had the, the poll there on Twitter. So thank you, Angela. Uh, and she was actually the one who commented that she really loves the summaries at the end of each episode. So um, thanks, Angela. We'll, we'll definitely continue on with those. And um, yeah, we've done a done a, a fair bit of planning for the summary of this one today. So we'll uh, try and keep it short, sharp, but really cover the main points. Uh, and then, Steph, you've got some other feedback from other people just uh, going about your day-to-day -day business, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we had um, Dean Williamson um, and he just wanted to say, yeah, thanks for committing to such a great podcast. Um, I think I've listened to every episode and I find it super helpful uh, I also laugh so much at Steph's posh A's, like in plants. <laughs> Graph and plant and castle. Yep. Yes, it's that South Australian accent, Steph. You probably and don't realise it being from South Australia, but certainly here in Victoria, I know whenever I used to, you know, growing up in sailing and we'd, you know, come across people from other states as you start to do national competitions, you, you pick up yep. on the accents and, you know, in Queensland it's school. And oh, yeah. Um, yep. That's probably not quite right, but there's this certain when when people from Queensland say the word school, you know them from Queensland, and when yeah. people say graph or plant, you know they're from Adelaide. Yeah, yep. you know they're bloody good too. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, we also had uh, feedback from, from Phil um, and he's looking forward to listening, yeah, to the Carbohydrate Loading podcast. He um, just did the Melbourne Marathon. Um, but, yeah, he's been following all of our, our podcasts and, um, yeah, he did really well in the Melbourne Marathon. So well done, Phil. Um, and then Chris Derry, from, um, he's a podiatrist and also works at the running company in Clifton Hill. Um, and he, yeah, really loves the, the Breaking 2 episode um, and is now listening to, you know, the, the others and he finds it really informative. Um, and I think, yeah, we have been really lucky uh, to get um, from the um, chat we did on Inside Running podcast with Julian, we've been really lucky to get some um, listeners coming across and listening to us too. So yeah, thanks heaps again to the Inside Running podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you know having that first birthday episode a couple of weeks ago, where we went through every single episode that we've had, has been really good because it's highlighted for people. Oh, you've done that a while ago, as you said before, Steph, and then you can go back and, and listen to it. Uh, because yeah. when you're scrolling through a list of podcast episodes, the ones that are right down the bottom, often you don't even know that they're there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really helpful. So thanks so much for everyone for the great feedback. It's been um, really humbling, I think, for us to, to hear such great feedback from people, um, particularly over the last couple of weeks with the first birthday and, and with the polls that we've done. And just a reminder, if you have any particular feedback or suggestions for episodes or um questions that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us via social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram uh, and make any suggestions there. And we certainly love to hear from you. And um, yeah, we've had quite a few sort of listener suggestions. Some of them have already become episodes. Um, some we've got plans in the works for 2022 for episodes as well. So today's episode. Yeah, today's episode, episode 28A. How can my nutrition help to keep me cool with Dr. Meg Ross? Um, So as you mentioned before, Steph, we did another episode, episode five, um, which was how do I best cope with training and racing in the heat? Um, So 5A was with Professor Ollie Jay from the University of Sydney, and he's a um, a thermal physiologist. Uh, And our episode um, 5B was with Jess Stenson, marathon runner, who has done several sort of hot marathons, um, including the Gold Coast um, Commonwealth Games in 2018 and then the Gold Coast Marathon which was uh, shortly after that so she had sort of two back-to-back hot races and we talked through some of her experiences and, and learnings in those but today we wanted to look at specifically some of the cooling strategies that are used from a nutrition point of view. With Ollie we talked a lot about sort of heat acclimation, um, some of the policies that are coming into sport around um, performing in heat uh, and also some of the factors around sweat evaporation and how you can improve that sort of evaporative cooling in dry conditions. But we wanted to talk a little bit more with Meg uh, about some of the work that she's done uh, around cooling in often very hot but humid conditions as well, where trying to keep body temperature down and where some of those things like traditional you know, evaporation of sweat are maybe not as effective as they could be. So uh, just to give you a bit of a background, um, Meg has actually just left. We've, we'll discuss this in the, the interview with her, just left her role um, at the Australian Catholic University. But prior to that, for a very long time, she uh, was at the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, she's a, a physiologist and exercise scientist, but actually worked within the nutrition department. So she had this sort of role across both physiology and nutrition at the AIS for Um, probably over 15 years, I think, in the end. And she um, started this work, I guess, around heat and cooling athletes in the lead up to the 2008 Beijing Olympics, 
uh, and that was some work around pre-cooling with ice slushies which formed um, the, the bulk of her PhD. So um, that bit of work was done by the AIS to prepare athletes in the endurance sports at the Beijing Olympics, obviously going to be a, a very hot Olympics. Uh, and the particular event that they really focused on the most was the, the Olympic cycling individual time trial, which for the men was ridden by a three-time world time trial champion, Mick Rogers, uh, and some bloke that uh, you might have heard of, Cadell Evans, who uh, obviously Tour de France winner in 2011, and he'd just come off second place in the Tour that year leading into the Beijing Olympics. Um, and there was one female competitor in that Olympic time trial as well, Ione Woods. Um, and so they did a lot of work uh, preparing Mick Cadell and Ione for the conditions that they were going to expect there and, and helping them with the, the cooling side of things. But that, as you'll hear, rolled out to other sports in Beijing as well. Um, since then, Meg's worked in other aspects of cooling and, and hydration for hot environments. They've done some work around what we call hyperhydration, which is deliberately, I guess, increasing uh, the amount of body water above the normal kind of resting well-hydrated level, so hence hyperhydrated. Um, we'll talk about the, the strategies that you can use for that, and that was some work that they did in the lead-up to the Tokyo Olympics that have just gone this year. Um, and the other thing that we'll talk to Meg about is the perception of temperature, which we briefly touched on with Ollie, but we'll go into a lot more detail about the mechanisms of that, but also the practical aspects um, using menthol as uh, a a substance or a compound that can actually make you feel cooler even if you're not necessarily cooler. So three different strategies here, pre-cooling, so deliberately lowering your body temperature prior to exercise, hyperhydration, so deliberately increasing the amount of water in your body before exercise, and then menthol, trying to reduce the perception of how hot you are even though it's not changing your actual body temperature. And just before I forget, Steph, um, there is a, a few different names that Meg refers to in this interview. So I thought beforehand we'd just explain who they are for those listeners who may not be familiar with these names. So uh, she referenced uh, John Hawley there, who was her PhD, oh, her honours supervisor, sorry. Um, and he is now the director of the Mary McKillop Institute for Health at Australian Catholic University. Uh, and his wife, Louise, is Professor Louise Burke, who was in our very first ever podcast episode, episode 1A on low-carb diets. Um, but Louise was the head of nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sport for about 30 years uh, and Meg's boss there at that time. Uh, a couple of other names she mentions, Mark Quad, who's a sports scientist who was there at the AIS uh, at that time. He then went on to work with um, the Green Edge Pro Cycling team, um, which has changed names over the years, Orica Green Edge, um, now Team Bike Exchange. Uh, and then the final name that she mentions there is Dave Martin. So Dave was the head of physiology at the AIS for a number of years. Uh, he's from America originally, and he's since moved back to the States, did some work with one of the NBA basketball teams over there, and he's, he's doing sort of more corporate performance work uh, from what I understand these days. Uh, but he was particularly involved in the cycling side uh, of physiology at the AIS um, and, and did a lot of that work around trying to help out the, the cyclists in the lead up to Beijing in terms of how they could improve performance in those hot conditions. Yeah, can't wait. Um, let's get stuck into it. Yeah, let's do it. Welcome, Meg, to the long munch. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for asking me to be involved. This is a you know, really good uh, opportunity to to thank you guys and, and celebrate what a year's just gone down. Yes. Mm. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah. Congratulations. It's a really good resource. So thank you for having me and asking me along. Awesome. Um, so I guess, you, you know, we've, um, we've had you on because we know you're, you're a bit of, what would you say, Alan, a heat guru. Um, <laughs> uh, so you've been working in the area of, I guess, cooling athletes for over about a decade or so now, um, starting in the lead up. Uh, to the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Um, how did you find yourself working in this particular area? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and time flies when you're having fun. And it certainly has been for all that time. Um, look, I, I was doing my honours in 2006 um, with John Hawley, and, but based at the AIS. And um, when you work with John, you get Louise along for the ride too, and she was very instrumental in um, working alongside my honours project, and and we formed a really good um, working relationship, and and had had a few opportunities where I was working with Louise and um, uh, doing some of the clinical research projects um, that she, some of the you know big questions that she wanted answered, and um, another project came along that uh, gave me the opportunity to work in this space. So in come 2007, when um, our cyclists were attending the test event in Beijing, we were able to get a really good feel uh, for what the Beijing Olympic Games uh, cycling time trial was going to be about. So working under the conditions of um, the, the, the uh, weather conditions in Beijing and the timing around the time trial. So the athletes, um, we, we, we really had... It's set up so that um, we we knew the conditions of what the Beijing Olympics um, were going to be about, and um, you know the real problem was that these athletes were going to be um, everyone was going to be bused to the Great Wall of China two hours before their time trial started, and the the obvious problem was that these athletes were going to be sitting in hot the hot conditions, so there was no air conditioning for anyone, and they were going to have to sit there for two hours before they started time trialing, so. We had the problem itself, and um, Louise working alongside Louise with a really, you know, practical solutions. But we didn't have all the answers, so it was a really important time for us, uh, one year out from the Beijing Games, to be able to do a bit of research and to some refine some of the tactics that we would use um, at the games. And um, you obviously you were at the Australian Institute for for many many years. Um, I guess, what's your, your highlights and your fondest memories from working at AIS? Oh, Steph, you know that that's a really <laughs> big question and um, it doesn't have a simple answer because, look, I moved from the Victorian Institute of Sport working under Troy Flanagan and it was a really great environment down in Melbourne um, working with some really great athletes and I had the opportunity to move to Canberra and when you moved to Canberra, there's more sports scientists per capita than anywhere else in the world. Um, but also, you know, a really positive side to that is that there's probably more funding for applied projects as well. Um, and because I was immersed um, across the physiology department and um, sports nutrition, it was a really great environment to work on some really cool projects across the two disciplines. So, yeah, I really enjoyed the interaction with um, the, the large groups and pulling off some of the big projects it's all about the interactions with people and and um, having you know just a lot of fun. We didn't feel like it was work; it was all just good fun, getting your hands dirty and keeping keeping those skills up. So it was really exciting, really great times. 
And um, in addition to your PhD, you've worked in other aspects of cooling, so perception of cooling and, and pre-exercise hyperhydration. Um, can you tell us a bit about these? Pre-cooling, um, we decided, obviously, I was working with Louise uh, pretty closely and, you know, anything you put in your mouth, you know, was able to float. So we were trying to pre-cool athletes from the inside out um, as opposed to a lot of the previous strategies, which was um, from the outside in, like with vests and cold water immersion. So, you know, when you're when you're um, using these strategies of um, ice slushies and... Um, and cold water or cold beverages, and like you said, um, using hyperhydration strategies, which is it's all really in, in, the, in the matter of what ingredients you put in your in your um, beverages uh, or pre-event meals that can help those large volumes of fluid uh, stay on board. So, typically, when we hydrate with water, you can actually lose weight by taking on large fl- fluids of uh, large volumes of fluid and, and actually excreting more than you've taken on so we like to play with a few different ingredients and um, you know looking at so simple things like sodium Um, we've also got glycerol which has come off the banned list a number of years ago so we can able um, to use those kind of um, ingredients and we're talking large volumes when you're talking hyperhydration Um, 25 mils per kilo is a large volume of fluid and so we start um, preparing these athletes if they're going to be competing in the heat you know a number of hours out so that those large volumes can you know you can get rid of um, the first bit um, uh, where you start your own production but when those additives start working you can actually hold on to more fluid um, which is beneficial to be able to uh, have a, a greater total pool of body water so that you can Use that um, as you uh, start to, de- you know, ins- delay the point of dehydration or you can, um, if the competition is on, you can afford to maybe miss one or two drink stations when it's not so, detri- you know, not so detrimental to your performance. And so, Meg, obviously, you know, you did the, the pre-cooling stuff sort of up in the lead up to Beijing. Some of that other work, the hyperhydration, you know, with glycerol and, and sodium and things, uh, was that more in the lead up to Tokyo? Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, we were able to do a bit more work with uh, glycerol as it came off the ban list, as I said, um, and also combining. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. might have been, yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, it was sort of the January of when it was announced. And, um, you know, it's, glycerol is a really good uh, strategy for uh, reducing, it's like a, um, antifreeze agent so it's really good at being able to make a nice consistent slushy so it's got you know mold, lots of different uses um, but you want to be obviously uh, in contact with someone like a sports scientist or a sports dietitian to be able to guide you in some of these practices so that you don't turn up on the day and you know um, and uh, have any detrimental effect on your performance if you're not guided in the right manner. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's get into some of these strategies in a little bit more detail now. Um, we'll start off with the pre-cooling side of, of things. Now, we spoke to Professor Ollie J back in, Steph, I'm going to say episode 4A mm-hmm. or 5A. I'll, I'll agree with you because you I think know five. how good I am at keeping <laughs> up with episode numbers. Yep. Um, so, so way back, almost a year ago, um, 
about cooling, particularly, I guess, in dry or low humidity conditions and talking about the fact that, you know, evaporation of fluid from the skin surface is a, a very efficient way, effective way of cooling you in those kind of environments, but it's not as effective when you get to a humid environment because the evaporation is less efficient. Um, so I guess that's where the, the slushies, you know, cooling from the inside out, or as you said, you know, things like ice vests or cold water immersion from the outside in sort of comes into play. So if we're talking about pre-cooling, that's obviously lowering body temperature before you start exercise. Um, it's not always practical, though, I guess, depending on where you are and, and your situation, what level of support you have to potentially access ice or, or ice slushies, um, particularly in those sort of quantities that you mentioned before, um, depending on where you're racing. Does it have to be ice or will cold water do the job just as well? Well, that's really interesting. So, um well, I'd say you can use both, right? Depends what you have. So anytime I'm talking to anyone about a, a sport, you know, you need to understand um, the logistics of the sport and the nature of the sport itself, um, requirements of the athletes leading into the competition. So, you know, you need to get a, a full analysis of what the specific sport's about and also the event uh, specifically that you're going to be preparing your athletes for or, or preparing yourself for. Um so, you know, the Great Wall of China, there wasn't, you know, certainly wasn't a, a tap to be able to fill our bath and there was certainly no ice to be able to, you know, cool the temperature of the water to jump in it. So we had to come up with a new strategy and, and um, the power of cooling of ice, the phase change that it goes through from being a solid to a liquid and then up to, say, 37 degrees, you get so much more bang for your buck uh, from ice than you do from water. So... That phase change is, is key and, and then you start talking about ice or ice-like products. So you're, you, know, you might be thinking of gel-based vests as opposed to an ice vest where you go through um, the phase change or you might have phase change cooling materials and you know they can go through a phase change at, say, 18 degrees like some of the, the uh, vests on the market at the moment. So it comes back to what can you achieve um you know and my phd was basically we need to be on the side of the road at a cycling event and it could be you know we're talking you know obviously it was for um to prepare athletes for beijing but my strategy was always if i can call anyone on the side of the road with no facilities um then you know i've got the ultimate strategy so we went back um, we did a whole range of uh, cooling externally and cooling internally. So we, we selected the one that was the best at cooling internally and externally and we combined them to use for the game. So we ended up coming up with a 14 grams per kilo slushy. So if you're talking about a 70 kilo athlete, we're talking about a litre of slushy. And we ingested that in um, two boluses, so seven grams every uh, for, you know, at zero 60 minutes before the start of the commencement of the cycling time trial and then 15 minutes later. So we did a, a total of 30 minutes of pre-cooling for these athletes and it was really, um, it, it needed to, so two things, it always needed to fit the same criteria, it needed to be logistically simple um, to implement in the field and it needed to be effective. So we were able to get some really good drops in core temperature and we're talking 0.7 of a degree in in uh, only 30 minutes so it was really powerful cooling combination 
um, that we're able to do. And if you think about the external mode that we used, we used uh, ice, uh, towels dunked in a slurry of ice water and wrung effectively dry um, and laid them over the legs, the torso, and then we had a third towel that we wrote. So we rotated those two um, body areas, you know, and you can up, if, if someone's a bit bigger, you know, you could tuck it under the armpits and around the legs to get really good contact with the skin and slowly tease um, that heat out of the body. And it was really effective um, because, you know, you go into every hotel room in the world and there's a towel sitting on everyone's bed. So from a practical perspective, it's, you know, it's not, um, you know, we weren't able to, when we, we sort of stripped it right back, we didn't have to use a slushy machine. You know, we could effectively um, freeze uh, a drink bottle of, of, you know, your commercially available sports drink, so around 6 or 7% uh, carbohydrate, and uh, freeze that in the hotel before we and take it out before we leave and, and keep that on ice until we're ready to use it. And by the time, um, you know, if you pull it out 60 minutes earlier than you want to use it, if, you know, you can, you can do these things um, really practically in the field. So it's just letting it thaw out a bit until it's that kind of ice slurry texture. Yeah, bash, bash it around. And, and also the other, the other benefit of being everywhere around the world is um, McDonald's have those big fat straws where you can get the ice chunks <laughs> through it. And yeah. Um, so we tried to be really resourceful um, and make it really practical for anyone to be able to implement. Yeah, yeah. It's got shades of the kids' lunch boxes in it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. with the, uh, the frozen juice boxes that sort Absolutely. of thaw out over the day. Yeah, okay. And, and I've seen since then actually some people making up like using ice cubes in a, like a, a Nutribullet or like one of those high-powered blenders and then putting it in a thermos, which tends to keep it as, as ice for quite a period of time as well. That's right. And you can, um, ref, you know, you can re, you could potentially make up your, your Nutribullet mixture and, um, you know, you might add salt, you might add some glycerol, you might add, you might just have your carbohydrate base, um, depending on your nutritional needs for the event that you're going to do. And, um, you know, you could refreeze those potentially until you needed them um, or, you know, keep them on ice, as yeah. you said. But, um, yeah, you can, you can do – and, th- I mean, that was a strategy that Australian Triathlon you, or Australian athletes used for the triathlon with our, the support of our sports dietitians um, in uh, Greg Cox. You know, he, he's – you know, he he used Nutribullets, yeah. a you know a, a equivalent brand. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And I remember seeing some photos of Beijing of the female marathon runners as well. I remember Lisa Waitman, and I can't remember who the other one was sitting there with the towels, drinking the slushies with Louise standing next to them. So obviously, it was used in more than just the time trial for cycling. Yes. Yes. So we tried to um, obviously work with all our endurance sports um, because the application of sports nutrition and pre-cooling was obviously greatest uh, for those sports, uh, rowing, cycling, race, walking, marathon. So, yeah, absolutely. They've um, been really positive um, adopters of our work and it's been it's been really fantastic to work alongside them. Yep. Okay, so going back to the the research component you did for this, obviously we talked a bit about the sort of the practical rollout of it in terms of how how much etc. and the timing of it. Um, but you did, as you mentioned, as part of your PhD, that research um, back in in Canberra around this, um, and you had from memory reading the paper quite a long time ago. You had like <laughs> a, a replica of the Olympic time trial course 
the Beijing yes. course into the computer. And this was obviously pre-iPhone, pre-Twitter, pre-Zwift, pre-Smart uh, Trainer. So it must have been a, a pretty big, cumbersome system to settle this. That was like it would have been extremely high tech in the day. Uh, I, I think it was, yeah, it was ahead of its time. We use uh, the Velotron um, bike and, um, you know, obviously everything we did was, you know, we Mark, Mark Quad even, um, so he did a lot of his honours work in pre-cooling and I, I sort of, you know, this is not all my work, you know, some of the, when I present this work, it's it's a legacy of, of many people who have come mm. over the last 30-odd years, so please don't think it's all my work. It's it's a real, been a real collaboration. So um, Mark did some validations of this bike and, and it was really good from a um, an endurance perspective, um, less so from a sprint because it used a flywheel um, mm. to, you know, if you put power down, the wheel would progress so far and, and that wasn't necessarily matched um, in a sprint performance. But anyway, we fitted our uh, SRM uh, power cranks, so we used our official power with SRM cranks on this Velotron and it, you know, as you see today, people riding Zwift, you know, there was this simulated course in front of them, but the key behind it was actually um, matching the physiological characteristics of a course. Um, so the uphill occurred uh, for, you know, if it was a five-kilometre climb, it, 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 it matched the uh, characteristics of the course demands for the athlete. So when yeah. we simulated our pre-cooling strategy, we simulated it under the Beijing conditions and, you know, obviously they were sitting in the heat for two hours before they started their time trial. So we made them sit there for an hour. We um, then got them to start pre-cooling for half an hour. Then we gave them a warm-up and we based this all and we kept going back to Dave, Dave, what would they do in this circumstance? And so we also matched when on the course they would, you know, we're talking time trials, so they're trying to be in a streamlined position for most of the time and we said right when are the opportunities to drink and so we literally you know the gun goes or the, the start goes for each competitor and we literally removed drink bottles um, from the eskies and put them on the floor in the heat sim, you know the simulated environment so we tried to match as much as we could so that when we went back to Dave with all the findings it it matched what he needed the, the question exact question so you know, we were able to push and pull information between, you know, working with a, a, a group of, you know, top local and sort of Australian representative cyclists um, and we were able to go to the Australian team to say, look, we've, we've tested it on these guys. And we actually had um, Mick Rogers who was able to come and test it out for himself before he went to Beijing um, after having rid, ridden the test event there. So. Yep. It was really exciting that the bike itself was, um, yeah, like I said, ahead of its time. Um, and you make good friends in every every one of these projects with the equipment, calibration, maintenance, and, um, you know, managing these bikes was yep. um, a labour of love. But, you know, they <laughs> gave back every every minute we put in. It was it a was really good project. You know, and we even had, um, we tried to match video uh, of the real course, so that when the athletes um, rode, when the yeah the Olympic athletes rode over the course, they could get a feel for the course. So we we started to do that a little bit, but for the purpose of my study, we we stuck with the simulated image, and it, it was quite funny because Louise always sort of says when she got to Beijing, she's like, "This is not what I what it looks <laughs> what it's supposed to look like." So yeah, you know, she just had that same 
mm. you know, simulated image in her head and then obviously she was in uh, at, you know, the Great Wall of China and then it was, didn't meet her expectations. <laughs> the real world, not the animated one, yeah. Yeah, that's right. um, Okay, and so when, when you did that study, what did you find in terms of the, the kind of benefit from a, a colleague point of view? So as you said before, you gave them you know, almost a litre of slushy depending on their body weight and that dropped their core temperature by you know, as much as you know, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 degrees Celsius. And yes. what happened when you then tested performance? Well, we had to compare it against doing nothing. Um, obviously, as a you know, a good protocol would have a, a robust study design, but we obviously needed to compare it to what they, what the standard um, was that was currently used at the time in cycling. Um, so my, this sort of then came about because of uh, Mark Quad's honours project, which where he looked at a phase change, combining a phase change cooling jacket um, after coming out of a cold water immersion, like a uh, you know, full body immersion in tepid water. So that was sort of the standard that we were, you know, this is what we were, could use. So if you can beat it, we'll, we'll use your strategy, Meg. So, um, and that's when we, we went through all the different combinations and the jackets that were available to us. Slushies and towels went up against the plunge and a jacket uh, combination and we were able to show that the slushy and the towels combination was really quite effective in how long it persisted for and we really showed the performance benefits in the second lap. I mean combined we showed a 3% improvement in power output um, which was equivalent to 8 watts over the time that they um, rode the so we you, I forgot to say we also simulated the length of the course and every you know, the, every Olympic Games has to have a time trial over, you know, a distance of 40 to 50 kilometres. So um, you get to f get a feel for what this Velotron, how well it was at simulating, you know, high power outputs. And um, our athletes ended up riding for about an hour and 20 minutes. So we were able to have an improvement of a minute over that time, which was significant. Uh, but it actually showed you how much it didn't, didn't simulate um, the power output, the speeds that you would get for the power outputs that a, an athlete of a certain weight would put down. So it showed us about the validity of of the um, the ergometer itself, but it was reliable for us in the, under those conditions. So it able to it was able to show us that we had you know really good improvements in performance that were it was quite interesting because it was sort of into that second forty five minutes or so mm. where the power of the cooling strategy came to its fore so you know the athletes were as hot in each of the um, scenarios but they were able to put down more power on average when they were in the uh, cooled by the slushies and towels uh, yeah which essentially means that they've generated more heat over that time that's right mm. that's right yeah but so generated more heat but stayed at the same temperature because they were to yeah, so um, they were able to put down more power um, for the same amount of body heat that they were putting yeah. out, and that was a, that was an interesting. It also came um, uh, a question, I suppose, from the work of Tammy Ebert's um, PhD when she looked at changes in body weight. You know, having an extra liter of slushy. Some athletes might think that that's a lot of weight to add um, on a hilly time uh, time trial course because uh, it was particularly hilly. You know, there's a big, long climb and then a short descent, and they repeated that twice. And her research showed that um, having that extra weight on board 
although it, um, when they were lighter, they didn't have to put down as much power on a hill climb. When, that, when they were cycling in the heat, having that extra fluid on board was really beneficial to their power output. So we knew that having a strategy like the slushy, you know, large slushy, wasn't going to be detrimental, you know, uh, to their performance. In other words, the, the benefit in power sort of more than offset the increased weight in terms of power-to-weight ratio? Absolutely, yeah. I'm assuming there's been a whole bunch of other sort of pre-cooling studies done since that time and probably before it as well. Is, is that a pretty consistent finding when you look across other research? Yes. Uh, like the, the research, research in using slushies, so um, we've had some work right from sort of, uh, you know, 2010 when the, um, this sort of research, the slushy research started coming out. Um, with small volume, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be. You know, your fourteen mils per kilo. We've we've shown that uh, around seven grams per kilo is been shown to be beneficial as well. Right, a bigger drop in core temperature once you get to a certain point. Um, and if you're a t- small athlete, this might happen with these large volumes. Is is you start to shiver and you can counter um, counteract the the um, the strategy that you're trying to actually employ. Yeah. Okay. Um, and presumably that pre-cooling effect, as you said, it went into the second 45 minutes on that um, simulated time trial, but presumably it's only going to last so long as the event gets progressively longer and longer. So for for longer events, things like you know, an Ironman triathlon or an ultra marathon or a cycle sportif that might go for 10 hours or something like that, do you think there's still potentially a benefit from pre-cooling in that kind of event? Or do you think that maybe it's not going to have that much impact because the intensity is a bit lower and the duration is obviously a lot longer yeah look i i haven't uh had too much time i suppose preparing athletes for you know 10 hour when i'm when i'm preparing athletes i'm working with olympic athletes or world championships so they're they're not in the realms of 10 hours yeah and i know steph you probably agree with me like i've worked with quite a few clients that live up sort of northern australia far north queensland um or wa you know in a mining town up that way um, and they're often training at really early in the morning to try and avoid the heat but even then you know at, at this time of year really struggling have you ever come across that situation where you're actually using or recommending pre-cooling in training rather than competition that's an interesting question alan and um you know pre-cooling the birth of pre-cooling i like to say has come out of the failings of heat acclimatization that is the that is the strategy um so if you're going to a climb that's the the best strategy to prepare for athletes but uh, or for anyone competing in the heat and it might be that you know suddenly a hot day in november before the summer has had a chance to expose you know people expose themselves to hot weather it might be an elite athlete that has to travel on a schedule so that they can't be in location for you know, the week before their tournament because um, they've got a you know, travel schedule to be somewhere else. So pre-cooling comes into it when you can't um, benefit from do, doing the acclimatisation or you don't have enough time or, or you know, the, 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 the process of acclimatising is fatiguing. So you might want to use it strategically, the pre-cooling, in or around training. Uh, but I, I would say that you don't want to prevent yourself from adapting initially uh, or mm. um, by keeping yourself out of the heat you actually need 
you need the heat to adapt. Yeah. Um, and that would be probably greater gains in performance than, than using. Pre-cooling is really an acute strategy that you would use on the day, um, whereas your, your big strategy is your acclimatisation, which is more of a chronic strategy yeah. to be used. Yeah, so for these guys, I think they're in a really humid environment. So maybe training, possibly if they've just got a really big session, like even if they are acclimatised, but it's a really, really big session and they know they're still going to struggle or they can't get out you know, really early in the morning. Yeah, your key sessions. You know, if you want your quality to remain high, you might choose, you know, one or two sessions that you go, right, we're going to practice our strategies. It'll benefit our training to keep that quality and that you need um, to come up for an event. Um, absolutely. There's, there's definitely pluses and minuses that you could um, argue. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on and talk about hyperhydration now. Now, you touched on it a bit earlier in terms of the volume of fluid can be quite a lot, you know, well over a litre in, in some cases. Um, and I know this is something that you guys looked at a little bit in the lead up to the Tokyo Olympics. Um, can you explain briefly what the concept of hyperhydration is and, and why you would choose to do that? Yeah, hyperhydration is um, preparing yourself in the lead up to an event where um, you're f- the fluid that you can take on board, the the performance that you might do is compromised by uh, fluid losses. So doing an event in really high heat and high humidity, um, you might benefit from hyperhydrating, so keeping that fluid on board. So what we do is um, 25 mils per kilo three hours out from the start of competition and we sort of every 20 minutes we we might um, we give like a quarter of that load every 20 minutes. So you you get the bolus in quite early, and then you get it and a chance for that fluid then to um, settle. And um, if you don't, so what what we're trying to do is add some ingredients that might help that fluid stick um, to be useful when you're exercising, so that you don't necessarily need to. Uh, rely on drink stations or you can delay that point of of dehydration to later in the event yep yeah makes sense um and so it sounds like in terms of the set of circumstances you would use it in as you said it's i guess very hot very humid environments ones where maybe access or opportunities to drink are going to be limited um or where you maybe gut tolerance of drinking during exercise is going to be difficult so maybe you're better off to try and take some on board beforehand yeah, that's right. And mm. and in some of these events, you might be able to, you know, benefit from uh, taking a bit, you know, a bit of fluid on during your race. But, you, you know, you've, you've certainly got um, the, the total body pool, I suppose, is larger than you would have otherwise from um, not doing this hyperhydration strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And then so the, the glycerol or the sodium that we've mentioned in terms of what you would add to that volume of fluid to essentially retain the water. So that's there essentially to stop uh, what we call the osmolality dropping, so diluting the blood too much that your kidneys then pee out the excess fluid. So you're trying to retain it and not just pee it straight out again. That's it. You, you're you on to it, Alan. Yep. Um, you, you make it sound so, so good. You don't need me. <laughs> All right. Um, now, glycerol, I guess some people have heard of it. Some people might have tried it. Um, it was it was banned by WADA for quite a while, as we said, until 2018. But what does it taste like if you've never tried it before? Uh, it's a sweet liquid that you can buy from, say, a chemist. Um, and it's, I mean, it's used in a lot of um, uh, food products uh, to make the consistency feel a bit 
you know, creamier or, you know, mm. thicker and nicer. Um, you, you'll find it in ice cream, you know, um, it's, it's, a, it's an additive, um, uh, food additive, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we talk about triglycerides being a type of fat and the glyceride or the glycerol part of, of that. Um, so what's your practical experience on this? Do you find athletes find hyperhydration easy to do? Do they find it very difficult? Are they overwhelmed by the volume of fluid or do they find it no problem? Are they, what's, what's your experience been? Um, well, they definitely, I mean, they definitely, we, we try it on them in a training session when it, you know, doesn't matter um, and I suppose the um, so uh, I should say you know a lot of my work has been in the lab working with um, non-athletes in this in this um, with hyperhydration but delivering all these um, outcomes to Louise Burke Jess Rothwell who were who were working with the Olympic race walkers and marathon runners um, and they actually responded really well um, to the volumes of fluid uh, they worked uh, very closely in, you know, in the lead up with their pre-event staging camp in Cairns, and spent a lot of time practicing this. And uh, you know, we tried to. We obviously in in the lab environment, we fixed sort of a, a protocol that everyone stuck to, and um, we found that the athletes in uh, when they were doing it, we sort of let them drink a bit more ad lib and they actually wanted to take on a bit more fluid than we had prescribed for the the lab group so they actually ended up taking on a little bit more because they felt a bit thirsty and um so they had a really good response and they uh they adopted those strategies and, and used them in uh this is the race walking group and we didn't have much uh we didn't necessarily have much interaction with the marathon group until we we're in beijing uh, sorry, in Tokyo, and um, Louise interacted with them, and and they were really late adopters, but they had a really really positive experience because you know working with the best, um, working with Louise, uh, it had a really good um, interaction, communication, and then great strategies that that were proven. Uh, so yeah, they had a really good experience, and they used those strategies uh, before the event. Yeah. Okay. And um, so with, with the strategy like this, I guess it's similar to the ice slushies. You wouldn't necessarily do this in training. It's more in that acute competition phase or or maybe that one-off super hard session in a really hot, humid environment where you might want to do it as part of your competition preparation. Yeah, that's right. Or actually, athletes have known to, be, to use these strategies to be able to recover um, from, say, like a, a session where they haven't necessarily hydrated particularly well or they've had a you know a, a you know bit of dehydration from a session they can use these strategies then to come up for the next couple of days absolutely yep. yeah. yeah yeah that makes sense and with both the slushies and the hyperhydration have you found any downsides to these approaches just in terms of the slushy um one you know a big outcome from my phd and we're talking uh nearly t 10 years ago when i submitted um, a big outcome was that it's a it was a blanket strategy. Um, what I'm you know the, the volumes that I'm talking about, and so you know a big outcome from my study. I suggested that we needed to start refining individual strategies for smaller people, smaller athletes, larger athletes, and so you do need to tweak um, some of the numbers that I'm talking about specifically for for your use. And um, I, I don't necessarily feel that that has occurred in the last ten years. Um, we're still talking about uh, blanket sort of 
numbers that every applies to everyone and um, from a from a research perspective anyway I'm sure athletes um, get a feel for what they like and and either up it or, or down it depending on how it, how they feel how the how it sits in their gut when they're we're trying to to run or walk or, or cycle you know cycles yeah. can take on a little bit more fluid straight after a meal uh, potentially and then go out and exercise yeah. so it's very different depending on what sport these athletes are from yeah so practice and refine pretty much like like everything we do i think um That's right. the other the other potential downside i was just going to quickly ask you about brain freeze with the slushies do you yes. find this is a problem and if so what do you do about it it seemed to be um from my <laughs> you know repeated um uh, of you know gi- giving athletes uh, the same athletes on a number of occasions it seemed to be individual um, so you are either a responder or a non-responder so it happened to you um, uh, people I suppose with poor dental health can have um, sore teeth as well so if you don't mm-hmm. look after your teeth maybe the it's a combination could be a combination of brain freeze and, and sore teeth but um, you know the mechanism behind that is that uh, you know the the where the palate is located to the brain the, the close proximity of the palate to the brain, or is it the fact that the um, uh, carotid arteries so going so the ice slides down the throat uh, so close to the carotid, which goes straight, you know, um, and brain freeze. So the sol- I've got the solution is to rub your, the the top of your palate with your tongue, and um, it should dissipate quicker. But it seemed to be there were individuals that responded to this, and some that just didn't have any problem at all yep all right so top of the mouth that's the <laughs> massage it with your tongue that yep. seemed to help excellent yep. excellent all right i'm going to hand over to steph and she's going to finish this off with menthol yeah so the the final final area i guess to look at um in terms of i guess um the cooling aspect is um, the body's perception um of being cooler uh and um I think most people are familiar with menthol in terms of brushing our teeth, but can you tell us, I guess, what it is, what it does, and how it relates to performance? Yes. Well, I mean, we all know that sensation of when you clean your teeth and um, you get that cold, cool sensation when you breathe cold air or have a sip of cold water. Um, there's oral receptors, um, neuro, neurological receptors in the mouth and the nasal cavity. Um, so if you have, you know, your fisherman's friends, you can certainly feel it in the nose as well. So there's receptors in those cavities that send messages to the brain. Menthol is a, a plant extract, as we know, from the mint species, and there's thousands of mint species, and they've all got d- different isoforms of, of the menthol. And um, peppermint, uh, just classic peppermint, has the highest form of the the isoforms that make that cooling sensation in your mouth. So you can, that's why you can get um, forms of, of mint that don't have that cooling sensation. So we choose uh, peppermint over, say, spearmint, which um, have that cooling sensation in the mouth um, and no, nasal cavity. Um, yeah, so we use uh, those to, uh, to, um, when you put those in the mouth, they send messages to the brain saying we feel good. And uh, in a way, though, when you're talking about risks of of what could go wrong, you know, we're, we're artificially telling the body, the, the brain, that you're feeling okay. 
Um, it's telling you you feel cooler than you actually are. So it's, it's a bit of uncoupling of the the um, thermal sensation with the with the perceptual um, the perception of what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and does it um, just have to be in the mouth in terms of menthol, or ca- can you get like the same beneficial effect if, let's say, you rub it on your skin? You can. So topical. Uh, you know, on the skin of menthol can actually, um, you can get that sensation as well. So the number of receptors, there's a higher number of receptors in the mouth and that's why it's it's preference to go through the oral cavity to get that sensation over the skin. Um, but in saying that, the different concentrations is really important uh, because you can tolerate a lot more, uh, a higher concentration on your skin than you can in your through your mouth and in in ingesting it so um interestingly though when you put on your skin Steph um a lot of these preparations are you know like a sorbeline or like a a they're mixed to be able to uh have these preparations so those can be thermal barriers for um, your skin to be able to sweat and, and dissipate heat so there's some risks there potentially that if you use um preparations with lots of different extracts um, from plants that they could actually inhibit your ability to thermoregulate. So that's certainly a risk um, in terms of being able to thermoregulate in the heat. Um, Another big risk is obviously this concentration. There's been evidence to show that um, a lethal dose has been um, given to uh, someone before um, inadvertently, they were cleaning a vat in a chemical company and they um, had a sufficient amount ingested um, just of the dust. So the equivalent of um, like a teaspoon for a, for a human, um, you know, 50 or 60 kilos, say a 60 kilo individual, um, uh, three grams was enough to be a toxic dose. So we're talking, when you ingest uh, menthol orally, really, really needs to be um, uh, important that a sports dietitian and a, or a sports scientist, someone who knows what they're doing with these concentrations, um, is administering these sort of levels. Um, typically, when you purchase menthol, it comes in the form of a crystal, and so obviously a scoop of that, say, crystal, could have um, really detrimental effects for human health. So it's really important that you get the, the concentrations right where. If you were to prepare something for the skin, something up to 30% could be tolerated. You might just have sort of mild sensation of burning on the skin, but um, that's sort of far and above what a, 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 a dose, a lethal dose could be for ingesting. So that's that's pure menthol, isn't it? Like if you buy the pure menthol in crystal form, which which you can do, but it's obviously not that common. No, it's not. But you can you can actually buy it from, you know, say, food ingredient companies, and that um, it's really um, important uh, that you know, companies are able to go and get those products um, to make up batches of toothpaste and confectionery um, items that you buy in the supermarket. They're available, but um, when you're you know, off the street, um, it's really important not to, you know, play around with these sort of things because it can be quite dangerous. Um, and for athletes, um, is it better for them to use it, um, if they are using it, in a kind of, in a single dose or a repeated dose? 
what's the kind of yeah yeah there's been um yeah typically it's used uh, um over time so repeated use and menthol um has a, a, a sustained effect you know if you have a fisherman's friend you can have that sensation in your mouth say for 10 to 15 minutes and that's sort of beyond when the you know, lozenge has gone um, dissolved in your mouth so yeah it can be um, it can last a while and um, but we sort of say that the, the effect really only is useful for um, when it, however however long that effect is in your mouth so and that's why it's used repeatedly but um, there's been evidence to show even just using it late um, late in a performance is can be beneficial as much as say you know once you're 85 it was one study that looked at 85 percent they administered uh, menthol late in stage of, of a time trial and it improved performance so when you're you're masking, I suppose, the real uh, physiological sensations that are going on. So it's really important that you're not masking the the true uh, uh, complications of, say, um, you know, heat gain, um, where you're uncoupling the, the sensations with physiological physiological strain. So um, yeah, it's really important to be able to time it right and use it in, a, in an appropriate manner. Yep. And so you can either use it pre and during or both but you just need that's to be, right yeah yeah probably pre and during or, or even just during but um you know it's really important that it can attenuate thirst uh, yeah. so this potentially could lead to deception driven dehydration um so if you've got athletes where hydration is an issue you should probably closely monitor those um or for athletes like i've been talking about where hydration is key to maintaining performance um, or for heavy sweaters, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, so I guess, Alan, and I know you did some work in the development of a gel containing menthol. Um, can you tell us about the work um, that you did in, in this area and if it's still commercially available or if it is commercially available? Uh, yeah. So we started looking at um, just to get in some of the raw products and, and using them and I um, reached out to Chris Stevens um, from Southern Cross University and he was really great. He came down to the AIS and we came up with a, a strategy where we um, looked at um, pre-cooling using our slushies and going back to slushies and, you know, you, you compare it to no intervention, you compare it to what we're currently using and then also we put it in over the top of having a, a slushy as we had what we decided um, and I'm, one thing I didn't mention about the, the way menthol works is it it's got a chemical binding to these receptors but it also is temperature de dependent so it can work better if it works um, it's, if it's a if it's applied in a in, in a cold medium so we decided to put uh, menthol into a like a shot of slushy so that the shot was small enough to not um, have a great impact on your body temperature because of just mm. the slushy, but we wanted just that sensation of, um, and try it yourself. Um, if you go and clean your teeth and then have cold water out of the fridge as opposed to cold water out of the tap, you'll get that. You get this, if the weather's quite warm, you get this nice, you know, wow, this is, it's really can be quite cool if you cool the, 
the uh, the menthol down. So what we decided to do was compare it, and, and we we showed some really good um, work with the race walkers. They were um, we we wanted to do a study on a group of Australian up and coming um, athletes. So we had both men and women um, at a camp at the AIS in January, and we provided these menthol slushy shots um and they did it in a training session where they were doing repeat efforts uh 1k efforts on six or six and a half minutes depending on if they're men or women and um we probably you know it was a bit more of a i would say a bit of a pilot study just to see what what worked and what what didn't and um we probably it was you know january we put them through really high intensity um, training block during this January period. It was hot. Um, we probably uh, they're probably under a lot of stress, I suppose, heat stress in in that month. A lot of training stress in training with some of the senior members and some of the internationals that were in Canberra at the time. And then they were, had this performance study that they did. We did over the top. So we got some really good insights to so that they didn't go any faster having these menthol shots in between each of the the. Um, uh, reps, but what they did do is that they felt a lot better. Um, so there's potential if we had got this protocol right that we potentially could see an improvement in performance with these this additional um, cooling of slushy. So this was a project that sort of led led into uh, connecting with Goo, which is a gel company uh, based in the US, and um, since then we've taken on. One of their product development managers um, has really uh, taken on board this project and, and wants to develop a, a combination of gel that could um, you know, use all these, I suppose, mechanisms where you light up the brain with carbohydrate and, and menthol and um, if you can serve them at cool temperatures, potentially there could be some benefits there to, to performance. Um, that is accessible and, you know, you're able to put them in your back pocket or, or um, you know, just make it accessible to them while they're training or whether, while they're competing. So we've we've had um, a couple of different versions of the gel so far. It's not commercially available at the moment, but we're just sort of working on the right combination of um, of ingredients. And, and interestingly, there's a Japanese group. So if you talk about... Um, you know, a lot of uh, research into drug development for different, say, um, diseases or, or disease states. What they do is look, they look at the mechanism and the mechanism is these trip channels is how menthol works and that's one target or, or a, um, what do I call it, it's a, uh, it activates this, this trip channel and there's other ingredients, nutritional ingredients like nutmeg that could potentially activate the same channels which don't compete with menthol so it's really exciting time in um, being able to prepare uh, you know some strategies nutritional options for athletes that can combine um, a number of different ingredients that could be beneficial in a number of you know hits different things at different times um, that could be beneficial to performance so we might have a menthol nutmeg gel coming up. Yeah, it sounds pretty wacky, doesn't it? Well, we're gonna we're gonna do a bit more pioneering work in in 
getting the flavours right. Yeah, perhaps. I remember overdoing nutmeg on because you use that when you make cauliflower, right? You add the nutmeg to the cauliflower. Yes, on, and, on the white sauce. Yeah, and I remember like I used to love it when mum made it and so then when I finally got to make it, I was like, oh, well, more must be better. So I just like <laughs> saturated it and I uh, oh. Famous scarred. last words. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and so menthol, was that used in the um, athletes in Tokyo? It was. Yeah. yeah we. Um, if you go back to some of the footage of, of both Louise and Jess in the feed stations mm. in Tokyo, uh, you'll see them handing out, uh, yeah, some, some uh, products that we came up with. Mm. And like, like, again, it was sort of part of the whole strategy um, we combined sort of pre-cooling hyperhydration and, and then topping it off with, you know, um, certain timings of when menthol might have been attractive to use to, you know, it's it can it can provide this sort of, you know, neural stimulus uh, neural stimulation of um, you know, a bit of a pick me up um, later on in the race. So yeah, it was yeah, we used it and um, the athletes um, had been using it for a couple of years. In lead up to Tokyo, some of the work, some of the athletes that we've been working with, um, Jemima and Montag has um, been a really good um, athlete, uh, up and comer in her debut Olympics, um, who has helped us and given us lots of feedback. So you know, great work um, between Jess and her athletes down in Victoria um, that have been able to help us develop these products even more. So it's exciting times. Yeah, and. Is there a suggestion that this particular strategy is more effective in either elite athletes or more recreational athletes? Because I think I know when I was reading some of the literature. The consensus statement? Yeah. 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 So part of this work, I was invited to be part of this consensus statement in leading up to the Tokyo Games and um, on the application of menthol uh, because it was – you know, we, we considered it from a whole range of different angles, you know, whether it fit into the ethos of sport. Um, we looked at it from a whole range of different ways and, and you can go and read this uh, study. Uh, Martin Barwood is the main author. And um, it was really exciting to, to learn from all the people in the world, I suppose, who are working in this space. And um, together we came up with some really good strategies um, to, to guide athletes on how to use it considering there are risks in taking it, um, but also so not just from a nutritional perspective, from a topical application perspective. And, you know, there is evidence to show that there's um, improvements in performance. Uh, there was, we did highlight that there was a lack of um, research in elite athletes and very, very little in in women. So, you know, this is an exciting area. And um, to, to think that you could do a consensus statement when we really it's a relatively new topic, there was, there was certainly enough to, di- to digest and come up with these consensus statements and, and agree or disagree. Um, and, yeah, but it was really uh, a great opportunity to put all the, uh, the evidence that's come so far um, into one place. And I think you've already answered this. Is there any merit in combining actual cooling methods, so using slushies with menthol to get that additive effect? Yeah, I definitely. I think so. I think yeah. it'd be um, it's 
and I think a, a few people miss it sometimes that there's the chemical, you know, the, the, the um, chemical interaction with the menthol hitting that sensor, but also it's it hits it harder when you serve it at low temperatures. And it's really interesting if you actually heat, if you serve it at high temperatures, um, it can actually flip the other way and promote sensations of warming. So I've, wow. I've actually been working um, with our alpine, you know, skiers and um, uh, just to come up with some strategies on perceptions of feeling warm as well. So, you know, that was the downside when you potentially put peppermint on an athlete's skin in an environment that's hot. Um, potentially you could, imp- imp- you know, there's, uh, there's other elements of, you know, different extracts that you can see listed on, say, your deep heat, which when they're put in different temperatures can have a totally different response. So potentially can you serve, you know, a peppermint hot chocolate in the snow? Yeah. I guess then you want to be careful with the athletes that maybe are using a menthol gel or something if they're competing in a hot environment um, and they're keep it in the back pocket and then that's warm and it warms up yeah Mm. so if you can for as long as possible keep it on ice you know that's beneficial it would you know you can really tell the difference um like i said if you were to practice you know even just rinsing cold water through your mouth when i go to bed i'm gonna brush my teeth and then have some cold water i had yeah do that and have 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 warm water and you'll notice and Uh, um it's uh, a totally different sensation and when you're – and I discovered this when I was in working with um, uh, a PhD student over at the UC Heat Chamber and I was doing a bit of, you know, research for myself um, and I just thought, oh, I will put a fisherman's friend in my mouth in the heat chamber and that will make me feel cooler. And I went – and it didn't actually work because I was breathing warm air over the top of this, you know, into my mouth. And um, as soon as I took a sip of cold, cold water, you know, like just a typical cold water tap from the, the local or the, the kitchenette kind of thing, um, you know, that my, the, the brain stimulation that I got from having that cold water over the top was just, it's like, right, we've got it. this temperature thing is, is definitely something to work with here. It's dramatically different. Yeah. So I guess if those commercial um, gels with menthol become available, then, Steph, maybe the way to go would be to decant them into a gel flask with a little bit of water and then freeze them because presumably the gels in the original packet will probably explode if you freeze them. But if you put them in a flask where there's a bit of room to expand, you can freeze it and let it sort of thaw out as you go. Great idea. And that's, I mean, that's the thing with the lozenge. The lozenge just stays in your mouth for a long time, even... You know, I've even tried dissolving a lozenge and done done it as a mouthwash, and it just it doesn't ha- didn't have the same effectiveness. So it's you know it's definitely the the um, concentration of the the um, ingredient you know, the mode you've got. Um, it's how long it. So a lot of the slushy sorry the the um, mouthwash studies make them rinse it through their mouth for you know at least ten seconds, but that's really hard to do when you're riding you know cycling around a track. Um, or you know, breathing really hard in a running race, you, you can't necessarily do that. So there's, you know, it comes back again to the logistics around each event. Yeah, awesome. Thank you very much. Um, a lot of info there, and a lot of practical info. And I think our listeners will definitely be taking 
that on board. Um, we are up to the bonus round, Meg. So this is like we have five quick questions just for our listeners to get to know a little bit more about you. Sure. Um, Sounds like fun. Worry. It's not too, not too scary. Um, so if you could go back to the end of high school and start all over again um, down a completely different career path, what would it be? Well, I am actually enacting that right now. You know, I've I've <laughs> quit my job. I sold my house. You know, I'm I'm making a real um, lifestyle change. I'm going to study cardiac sonography. And um, look, I, d- I wanted to have a bit of a change in my work. I love what I do. You know, I'm really passionate about it. But I wanted to also fulfil some other you know life goals. And um, yeah, so I'm going to be. Um, yeah, applying my skills in a different way with a bit of extra knowledge and, and um, become a cardiac sonographer. So let's see how that goes. Doing awesome. it. Awesome. Yep. And um, one thing on your bucket list that you're yet to do. Oh, well, that's why I uh, had this penchant to, to try something new. So, um, look, it might mean sort of working with um, patients with ill health, but I'd love to get back into... Um, working with athletes and so any athletes with heart conditions because I've seen a lot in my time of you know athletes like triathletes or rowers um, that have heart conditions and you know a really uh, interesting topic for me and you know if there's anything I can do to help you know I'd love to be part of it. In the meantime you don't want to jump out of a plane or climb a mountain or anything like that? Uh, I'd like to be a helicopter pilot. Oh there you go. Oh that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, helicopter lessons, there you go. (laughs) And a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't yet had the chance? I've never done cross-country skiing. Yeah. I'd like to try. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I used to live near the beach when I was growing up. Um, I didn't go to the snow, but I've had a chance to in my recent years. But, um, yeah, I've never tried it. So it could be a bit of fun. Yeah. And do you live by any piece of advice or motto? Um, I do. I would like to think that, you know, any thing that I come across, I'd like to leave it in a better state um, than I found it. So whether that's pre-cooling research or the environment or, um, you know, any interaction that I have with something or someone, I'd like to think that they're better off for having interacted with me or, or vice versa, you know. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's uh, something that's, you know, important to me, I suppose. Mm, yeah. And um, so it's a favourite moment from the Olympics or Paralympics um, in your time working in elite sport? Easy. That's easy. Um, uh, I started working at the Victorian Institute of Sport in 1999 and I spent the year working embedded with just helping the athletes prepare for Sydney Games. Um, I was very fortunate enough to um, attend and do some, you know, basic you know, sports science in my early career working with Cathy Freeman and to go to Sydney and, I mean, I didn't get to go to the track that night, um, but, you know, she was a bit of a hero of mine growing up and, and seeing her win um in Sydney was just an incredible moment and you know I didn't need to be standing with all my friends and family um it was just being able to see that unfold standing in the middle of Sydney watching on a big screen with 
the rest of Australia just standing around me. It was just an incredible moment that I'll never forget. Mm, good one. Where were you, Steph? Do you remember? Oh, jeez. No. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I was you? in Sydney. Um, I was actually there for a, a school thing, um, totally unrelated to the Olympics, but it just happened to be at the same time. So I think I was. we were staying, one of the kids from my class, his grandparents lived in Sydney and we were staying at their house. I think we watched it at their place or it might have been on a big screen. I can't remember. Um, yeah. That's making me feel old, though, if you're still in school. <laughs> well, it was year 12. That's why I didn't comment, Alan. <laughs> oh, no, that's great. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, super informative. No worries. Thanks for your time and uh, really appreciate being um, considered, uh, a, you know, it's a really important topic. I, I really enjoy it and, and thanks for letting me indulge in some of the fun stuff that I've been able to uh, work in. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, thanks Meg. That was amazing. Thank you very much, Meg. Um, yeah, wealth of info and um yeah, has spent and, and worked alongside uh, who we say our is sometimes known as the mother of, of sports nutrition, um, Professor Louise Burke. So, yeah, super lucky to have Meg join us. Okay, so to summarise, Meg, as you said, I think there was a lot of great stuff in there. In terms of pre-cooling, I guess uh, the use of ice slushies as a, a cooling strategy was kind of developed in the lead up to Beijing, really as a practical alternative to cold water immersion and ice vests, given the scenario that they were in having to bus out to the Great Wall of China for the, the cycling time trial. And it just wasn't practical to, to have um, plunge pools with, with ice water in them to be able to immerse themselves in at the, the race venue. Um, the actual slushie itself uh, the volume that they were using was 7 to 14 mils per kilo, which, you know, depending on your body size and which end of that spectrum, it's anywhere from about 300 mils up to about a litre of slushy. So if you think about like a 7-Eleven Slurpee or something, it's probably anywhere from the small size up to the big jumbo one, I suppose. Um, and using that would uh, lower people's body temperature by somewhere between half a degree and, and one degree Celsius from its normal baseline. And so you start exercise at a lower core body temperature. Um, Meg mentioned that you know ice and the reason that we use ice slushies is that ice is much more effective than water at that cooling and that's to do with the phase change. So when it physically changes from ice to water, um, the amount of energy that that takes, which then draws up that heat energy, um, is quite significant. So the phase change is really important there. So it is actually far more effective than using cold water that's just above freezing. Uh, the use of ice slushies, I guess the, the types of efforts or performances that, that Meg has been investigating and most of the studies are in sort of shorter, higher duration efforts, so anything from sort of half an hour up to maybe hour, hour and a half, uh, that kind of thing. We don't really know as much about performance during those sort of longer events with, with something like pre-exercise cooling with ice slushies um, and so it's, it's hard to make sort of judgments based on those. Uh, if it's something that you want to try, I guess, from a practical perspective, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. Uh, as Meg mentioned in Beijing, you know, they didn't have an ice slushy that they, uh, slushy machine at the Great Wall of China. So they would just freeze bottles of sports drink, uh, and then just pull them out about an hour before they were planning on using them, let them thaw out, 
bash the bottle around a bit to break up the chunks of ice uh, and then it would basically form a bit of a, a slushy type consistency and the use of the glycerol and the sodium within those actually helps to maintain that consistency uh, as opposed to just having like plain plain water so that the sodium in the sports drink can help a little bit there as well in terms of changing the freeze point and, and the, the texture of, of how the ice forms. Um, but the other ways you can do it, which have been used as well, you can get ice cubes, put them into a blender, um, something like a Nutribullet, one of those really powerful blenders with really good sharp um, metal blades. Uh, and that actually makes up quite a good slushy consistency as well. And then you can put that into an insulated container like a thermos, and it will actually keep it in ice form for quite a significant period of time. So that's the other way to use it. And that was certainly done in Tokyo, for example, with the, um, the triathletes. Uh, you can obviously add um, carbohydrate to that slushy, so it can be part of a, a more broader nutrition strategy. Um, it doesn't have to just be cooling with, with liquids and then having the carbohydrate separately to that. You, you can combine those two. Uh, and then finally, if you are having that sort of brain freeze or ice cream headache or whatever you want to call it, uh, Meg's suggestion was to um, rub the top of your mouth with your tongue, uh, and that may actually help um, alleviate that not so pleasant side effect uh, if it's something that is a problem for you. Uh, in terms of hyperhydration now, so as we mentioned at the start of the show, it's uh, a strategy that's deliberately designed to increase the total amount of water in your body prior to exercise. Uh, and most of that is held within the blood, in the plasma. Um, and it's really designed as a strategy to be used in situations where dehydration is kind of unavoidable. So, um, you know, extreme heat and humidity where you're going to have massive sweat losses and you just don't have the ability, either you can't access enough fluid, you can't tolerate drinking enough fluid, or you just don't have the opportunities to drink it during an event to actually, you know, prevent that significant loss of water and, and therefore the adverse effects that, you know, losing that body water might have on your performance. So the strategy, um, obviously, you can you can do this in slightly different ways, but the typical strategy that's described in research is about 25 mils of fluid for every kilo of your body weight uh, and having that about three to four hours prior to the exercise that you're going to do. Uh, and the reason that you have it so far before is that you want to allow all that fluid to be absorbed into your body so it's not sloshing around in your gut. Um, and then any excess that you are going to pee out, it gives you plenty of time to pee that out so you're not sitting on the start line. Um, worried that you're going to have to go to the toilet. So in terms of that 25 mils per kilo, if you're a 50 kilo athlete, that translates into about 1,250 mils. And if you're an 80 kilo athlete, it's about two litres. So it's actually quite a considerable volume of fluid. Um, but you don't have to you know, gulp it all down in one go. You can have that progressively over a period of time. Now, if anyone is going to gulp down two litres of fluid um, with nothing else in it, you'll probably recognise straight away that you're going to pee the majority, if not all of that, straight back out again, and that's not really going to achieve very much. So that's where the use of sodium loading or glycerol loading comes into effect. Uh, and so the idea with those is that having the sodium or the glycerol with it basically uh, increases uh, the osmolality in your blood in step with the fluid that you're drinking. So it's not necessarily designed to increase the osmolality or the, um, the concentration or dilution of the blood, uh, but simply to maintain it because it would normally go down if you drank that amount of plain water on its own. Uh, and so if you did that, the osmolality goes down, that stimulates your kidneys to pee out all that extra, extra fluid. But when, you, when the osmolality stays the same, you don't get that stimulus to the kidneys and so they retain the vast majority of that fluid. Um, if you have too much sodium or glycerol relative to the fluid that you're drinking, 
um, what's going to happen is you're going to be extremely thirsty because your osmolality is going to go up and that's going to signal thirst. Um, and we'll speak to next week's guest who, who did experience that. Too little sodium or glycerol and you're just going to pee out most of that excess fluid. So it's important that you get that amount right and that it's in balance with the water that you're ingesting because it's the balance between the two that's important rather than the amounts of each individual one. Uh, therefore, uh, I don't think we'll go into too much detail about exactly how to do that because it is, is a little bit tricky. Um, my suggestion would be to consult with a, a sports dietitian or exercise scientist who has specific expertise in hyperhydration uh, to get that balance right. Uh, it's not a strategy where you just chuck in random amounts of sodium or glycerol and water and expect that it's going to work out. Uh, the effect of hyperhydration on performance is a little bit less clear-cut than cooling. Uh, it's actually something that I've just started doing a literature review on with um, one of our previous podcast guests, actually, Dr. Chris Irwin. Um, and we're actually halfway through that process at the moment of looking at all the studies ever done around hyperhydration and what the effect is on performance. So uh, hopefully sometime next year we can maybe report back to this podcast on, on what we found. Uh, and then the final strategy was menthol, which is about um, changing the perception of temperature rather than changing the actual temperature itself. So menthol is a compound that's found in mint, particularly in peppermint, um, and then obviously extracted and then added into different food products. Uh, the main ones probably that you'd be familiar with would be confectionery, things like Fisherman's Friends. Uh, here in Australia, we have Sour Patch Kids Freeze Lollies, which is, I think, where we were probably experienced them, Steph, uh, at a conference actually where we were given those during a, a talk about menthol and they really have a quite strong effect. Um, uh, Meg mentioned also that she's been involved in developing an energy gel in partnership with Goo um, that contains menthol as well, but that's not yet commercially available. So the menthol itself acts on the nervous system, gives you that sensation of coldness, even though you're not actually colder. Uh, there may be some performance benefits from that, and there is some encouraging results uh, in the literature. Uh, but be aware also that because you're not actually colder, the issue here is because you feel that you're cooler than you are, you may actually push the pace a bit too hard, particularly if you're having menthol early on, um, go out a bit too hard too early for those conditions, and that can be a bit of an issue as well. Um, one of the surprising things I think both you and I, this was a new learning for us, Steph, was that the um, the menthol can have actually the opposite sensation if you've got hot objects in your mouth rather than cold objects or, or even hot, really hot air um, or drinking a fluid that's been in the sun, for example, if you've had a drink bottle on your, your bike in the bike cage, in the bottle cage that's been sitting in the sun for several hours and is going to come out at 30 degrees or something and you've got menthol in your mouth, it might actually give you more of a warming effect rather than a, a cooling effect, which may not be obviously the desired thing. Uh, I guess the final thing more just from a, a safety point of view is that you can buy from food ingredient suppliers pure menthol in crystal form, uh, but we'd very much advise against doing that because the required dose of menthol is extremely tiny, uh, tinier than the, the, um, the gradation that most set of kitchen scales would have. We're talking about milligrams, not grams. And so if you overdose or you know, take too much of that menthol, um, that can cause a burning effect to the, the mouth or wherever you're applying it if you've taken too much of it. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't go playing around with menthol crystals uh, unless you're a food chemist or someone like that who's uh, really familiar with, with what they're doing in that space. Uh, and then I guess the final thing, like any strategy we ever talk about on the podcast, obviously, um, you know, they can be effective, but they're not for everyone. Um, there's pros and cons of all of these strategies. So you really need to try them out first in training before you start pulling them out in a race situation. Well said. Good, uh, good summary. I like it. Um, 
yeah, Meg uh, did say you've got away with with this, and I totally agree. Um, so yeah, uh, good good tips, and there's some that that people can potentially try out, but then there's a few others that um, yeah, I agree recommend to to see a sports dietitian or exercise scientist to help you guide um, guide you on that. Um, so next episode, we're up to episode twenty eight B. Mm-hmm. And uh, who have we got for that hour? Yeah, so obviously it's the the athlete podcast follow on from this episode. So the topic is still how can my nutrition help to keep me cool? Uh, and we're very lucky to be joined by Olympic marathoner Sinead Diver, who competed obviously at the Tokyo Games just a few months ago, uh, and that was her first real experience of a marathon in that sort of really hot environment. Uh, and obviously she was involved in some of the work that Meg was talking about in today's episode in terms of you know trialing the menthol the hyperhydration and the pre-cooling with the slushy so we'll have a chat to her about her experience with all three of those uh what she made of those during the the trial period during um, training camps and then i guess what she ended up deciding to use on race day so yeah it'd be really good to hear from her about the the practical realities of, of rolling this out in the field um, and also just a reminder that that podcast episode will come out on Monday next week and not Thursday uh, to give everyone plenty of time to have a listen to that before the holiday season kicks off. Awesome. Uh, cool. So, yeah, anyone's got any questions, please um, just uh, send them to us at um, the Long Munch on either Facebook, Twitter or um, Instagram. But otherwise, we'll um, leave you and we'll see you soon when we chat to Sinead. See you then. See ya.